Hello. Welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is Episode 4, Colloquy. Last time, in the last episode, I went extensively into the warlord period, a complex period, but some understanding of it is necessary to realize why China became what it did. It will not be the last time I talk about the warlords and their influence over the Republic of China. Indeed, their influence goes well into the 1920s. I also touched on the political climate in China. World War I had an immense impact on all nations at that time. China was no exception, though it did not actively participate. We learned that the Versailles Peace Treaty, which officially ended the World War hostilities, was not a high point in China's history. The Western powers betrayed China over the Shandong province issue. And that reverberates into the events I want to discuss in this episode. In this episode, I'll get into the May 4th demonstrations. The demonstrations were partially set off by what they had learned, what was going on in Paris during the treaty negotiations. The May 4th movement, as we will learn, was a watershed moment for China. Also, the Republic of China enters into its twilight with the start of the 1920s decade. From that decade, the Chinese Communist Party, as a political and revolutionary party, was hatched. Finally, I will spend some time on the Washington Naval Conference held in Washington, D.C., from late 1921 to early 1922. The May 4th, 1919 demonstrations, some refer to it as a revolution, can be viewed as a watershed moment in the continued modernization of China. What started in 1898 under the Qing Dynasty, under the 100 Days of Reform, to westernize and modernize China came to another marker with the May 4th demonstrations in 1919. The demonstrations continued the modernization movement, particularly on the political and social order, referred to, referred to sometimes as a new culture movement. That resulted in eventually casting out relics of China's feudal past, Beginning with the 1898 reforms, China began to incorporate Western nations, ideals, and thoughts into Chinese culture, beliefs, and traditions. The Shandong province incident and the public criticism against the pro-Japanese bent of Duan Chiri's Anfu government resulting from the Paris Peace Conference crystallized Chinese nationalism. How 
and in what political form Chinese nationalism took shape largely defines this period in China's history. Things came to a head in the spring of 1919. On the morning of May 4th, some 3,000 students assembled at the, de- at the Gate of Heavenly Peace in Tiananmen, in Peking, to protest the complicity of the Anfu government. If you remember, at the Paris Peace Conference, the Chinese delegation there first learned that Duan Chiri and the Anfu government had, in 1918, secretly agreed to let Japan stay in Shandong in return for the Nishihari loans. The demonstrations started peacefully, but eventually turned violent. The Chinese government then used force to imprison hundreds of the students, and that only incited more of the students. Soon there were student disruptions in over 200 locations in China. The government was soon obliged to give in and release the students. That was seen as a major victory for the students. The May 4th demonstrations, seen in the context as a major destructive action, falls quite short of that. In context, it appears merely a superficial movement. It was, however, at that time and historically a much bigger matter, an iconic moment in modern Chinese history. Chronologically, it was part of the flowing and dynamic upheaval China had experienced, at least from the latest stages of the crumbling Qing dynasty. I like to view the May 4th demonstrations and everything that precipitated it and everything that resulted from it as what you get when you try to throw off over a thousand years of a political and cultural way of life. You would not expect that change to go smoothly. The May 4th incident was and has become a defining moment for China for several reasons. First, it pushed forward the national focus on China's modernization and nationalism. For sure, China would seek to define what it meant to be and what was a nationalist. Second, revolution was a legitimate collective act to break from the established past. Third, Traditional Chinese culture and tradition had to be examined and, if necessary, changed. Indeed, the May 4th movement established a beginning point of the new cultural movement. Yes, many changes had already occurred in China's cultural, political, and social traditions long before the May 4th incident. The May 4th incident did not cause those What the May 4th movement changed was the nation's treatment of how it wanted to proceed in discussing all of this. It put the national focus on China's issues like it had never been before. Intellectuals began to publicly question all traditional Chinese values. The nation became self-critically aware of its old values and what they may have caused and many of the problems China had faced. The May 4th demonstrations marked an explosive expansion of the audience that the discussions would reach. Many believed that Western ideals and methods were the way to go. Science and democracy for many became the rallying cry. Perhaps at that time, and no other, 
China was truly open to critical opinions that could be publicly expressed. Western thought, however, was not the only option discussed. The period also saw the emergence of anti-Western ideals and thoughts. Indeed, as we shall soon learn, May 4th was also the germination of the Bolshevik Lenin theories and ideals into the national form and debate. After World War I, the European powers were exhausted. They sought aggressively to have discussions to preserve their interest in the Far East. They wanted to hash out their Pacific Asian differences. Japan wanted discussions too. She had expanded her naval presence in the Pacific. The United States at that time also had a large naval presence in the Pacific. Japan was troubled by this, as it was costly to maintain the the status quo with the United States. Ever since the Russo-Japanese War in 1904-1905, the U.S. and and Japan had been at odds over China. The United States believed Japan's presence in China jeopardized its open-door policy in China. Rising Japanese militarism, particularly in China, worried U.S. leaders. So an international conference was requested to discuss all of the nation's Far East and Pacific concerns. An arms race was feared after the World War, and the conference, it was hoped, would be a way to curb and prevent another war. It was called the Washington Naval Conference because it was held in Washington, D.C. over a four-month period from November of 1921 to February of 1922. Several major and minor agreements came out of the conference. Some of the agreements out of the conference affected China both directly and indirectly. Let me quickly go through the material ones. On December 13, 1921, the four nations of the United States, England, France, and Japan settled on what is known as the Four Power Pact. It stipulated that all the signatory nations would be consulted in the event of controversy between any two of them on any Pacific question. Several major agreements recognized each nation's Pacific possessions and set the amount of naval armament for each nation. Three major treaties emerged, and several stipulations and understandings. Two of those directly affected China, and were a, and they were a signatory to these agreements. The Nine Power Treaty included the four nations I mentioned a moment ago, but also China, the Netherlands, Portugal, Belgium, and Italy. The Nine Power Treaty affirmed China's sovereignty, independence, territorial integrity, and gave all nations the right to do business in equal terms. The treaty recognized the West's open-door policy in China, which was not a new concept, for sure. It also memorialized Japan's dominance in Manchuria, China. The treaty, however, had two problems. One, I'll get into now. The other, a little later in this episode. The treaty 
lacked an enforcement mechanism. It is hard to believe the signatories missed that. Maybe it was not an obtainable go. The other agreement directly affecting China was a bilateral agreement between her and Japan. That agreement settled the Shandong question. Japan agreed to return Shandong province and its railroad. It was hoped the bilateral agreement and the nine-power treaty would reassure China and others that Japan would not seek further expansion in China. In all, two treaties and nine resolutions came out over China. One thing for sure about the conference, it yielded It yielded high ideals and expectations, and that is about all it did. China may have accomplished the appearance, at least, that it was making some headway in chipping away at the unequal treaties it had been been subject to for nearly a century. Also considered that the Soviet Union and Germany were left out of the conference. The problem for China specifically regarding these treaties and resolutions, aside from the enforcement issue I just mentioned, was at that time, China, as I will explain shortly in more detail, had two national capitals, one at Peking and one at Canton. There was no single government in China capable of exercising sovereignty. Some have taken the view that the conference's value to reach enforceable agreements with all nations set the course for the tragedies to follow in the next decade. Perhaps. Maybe. On the positive side, it has been argued that the conference did alleviate tensions between the United States and Japan. The conference was a search for a new order in the Far East. I will leave it to my listeners to decide if it accomplished that. In my last episode, I alluded to, indeed, I posed a question. At what point did the Chinese leaders and citizens realize the liberal, constitutional, Republican form of government was a hopeless cause? Now, I cannot know the answer, but we do know that the betrayal by the Anfu government allowing Japan to keep Shandong province led to many tensions and was a primary reason for the Anhui-Chili War, ousting the Anfu government from power. We also know China's financial and political instability doomed the Washington Naval Conference's agenda and goals. By 1922, the Peking government was shaky and verged on political collapse. It had no money, no power. It was only allowed to exist for appearances only. It was a mere fiction. After the Jili Fengtian War in the spring of 1922, enthusiasm for the Republic of China was beginning to die. The Jili faction, having defeated the Fengtian clique, hoped to parlay that victory into national unity under its auspices. It demanded the immediate resignations of Xu Shichang from the Peking government presidency and Sun Yat-sen from the Canton government presidency. It is interesting to note 
that Sun Yat-sen had been trying long before 1922 to establish a national government in Canton under the national Guomindang. Not surprisingly, Bolshevik-Lenin theories were given some latitude in China around this time. Some have argued that the Bolshevik ideas, if implemented correctly, were a potential answer to Western imperialism and political thought. The betrayal at Versailles became a rallying cry. No doubt many Chinese were impressed by the Bolsheviks' victory in the Russian Revolution in 1917. So it was that in 1921 that the CCP was founded as both a political party and a revolutionary movement. Its first National Congress was secretly convened in Shanghai in July of 1921. Li Dajiao and Chen Duxiu stand out as the early CCP leaders. They began to arrange and organize labor unions in China's major cities. Other CCP leaders started to emerge too. Mao Zedong, Lu Xiaoqi, and Li Lisan. While Sun Yat-sen and his Guomindang nationalists stayed faithful to the Western constitutional democracy, they began to express doubts themselves that it would work in China. After the May 4th incident, some of his disciples expressed interest in Vladimir Lenin's views and the Bolshevik formula for dealing with state power. The Lenin theory of imperialism quickly became part of the public debate in China. I am not going to discuss those theories that appeared in his book. One, I am not confident I understand them. And two, this is not a podcast about socialism or communism. Suffice it to say, Lenin's theories were being publicly discussed. By the mid-1920s, the sham national government in Peking was trying to convince the world it spoke for China. Meanwhile, during the Washington conference meetings, both the Guomindang and the CCP were positioning themselves. They both openly denounced the conference as imperialistic collusion and demanded full sovereignty for China. The Soviet Union was peddling to China another view than that offered by Western nations. Moscow was offering to support anyone in China that might further socialism. The Soviet Union was working with both the existing government in Peking and the warlords too. The Soviet Union's plan was to hope to gain a foothold in China to enlarge socialism. It was giving aid to Chinese revolutionary forces too, through the Communist International or the Comintern. In September of 1920, the Russians even proposed an inducement to China. Called the Karakhan Manifesto, it was two resolutions offered to forgive its boxer indemnity claims and to relinquish all the other old czarist rights and privileges in China. By 1924, the Russians had agreed to normal relations with China and stated it wanted to cancel its unequal treaties with China, allow Chinese control of Outer Mongolia, and jointly manage the Chinese Eastern Railway with the Chinese. In my next episode, the Soviets invest heavily in China 
aiding China's reunification efforts. I'll devote most of the episode on the Nationalist Revolution that dominated particularly the second half of the 1920s decade. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.